Let's get going. We could stand and talk all day, or you could sit and listen to me for a little bit, and then you could stand and talk all day. So don't sound so excited. So we're going to build upon what we were talking about last week. We've been in this series for a while. And uh, as we, we continue on this, the, the, the key mark that we're on, because we are in the last leg of this series, is that you need to know something, that the spiritual world is alive and well. It doesn't mean that it's alive and doing well, but it is alive and well. There are things that are going on spiritually that oftentimes we just assume are just kind of part of being in the world. I mean, you could make an argument about this thing going on in Ukraine, could have spiritual connections to it, okay? And there's reasons for all of that that we're not going to go into today, all right? Just so you know, this isn't the Gog and Magog war, okay? I just, I've been asked that several times. So in case you were wondering, this is not it. But the thing that we have to keep in mind is that when we think about how we are on this earth, and there's a reason that we're talking about this, is that we live in a spiritual world. Time and time again, it talks about New Testament believers being sojourners on the earth. Sojourning, and remember, when it says that, it's written usually by Paul, but somebody who is an Israelite, and they were sojourners in a land that was not their own for a very, very long time. Right? Very long time. They wandered the wilderness. They didn't go into the promised land. Prior to that, you had the, the time of the people were with like Jacob and, and Joseph and all these guys. They were in a land that did not belong to them. It was promised to them, but it wasn't theirs yet. God hadn't given to them. And then after they had been given the land, there were times when they got driven out of the land. And they were once again sojourners. And no matter what they did... It, they never stopped being Israelites, God's chosen people. That never changed. Hasn't changed today, in case you're wondering. Still the same. But the land they were in was not their land. So building houses there was all well and good. That was fine. You've got to have a place to live. Finding work or doing whatever, all well and good. You had to do that. But their focus was always on the promised land. We talk about Jerusalem, but it's much, much more vast than that. For you and I as believers today, this is not our home. This won't be anybody's home for too much longer. It's all going to burn. Be a new heaven, new earth, all that kind of stuff. Our focus needs to be on the spiritual. Because that's where we battle. That's where we walk. That's where we live. But yet right now, we do have natural things we have to take care of. Now, I'm not one of those guys that's going to get up here and tell you that there's a demon behind every corner or anything like that. But I will tell you that there is stuff that is going on. There is always stuff that is going on. And so over the last several weeks, I've had people share some different stories and experiences. And I know I'm springing this on you this morning, but we did talk about it Wednesday night. Would you mind coming up and just sharing the story? It kind of goes along with one that I shared myself a couple of weeks ago. I shared that because of that. Yeah. Let me think of that. Um, I used to own a cleaning business in Lincoln, and I got a new job to clean for a Christian family's business office, and they just moved there. Some of you have probably been to Da Vinci's in Lincoln. It's a restaurant, if you're not familiar. Yeah, Italian restaurant. So <clears throat> I'm cleaning, you know, at night after they're all gone, and things kept happening, and like I'd hear Steve and the kids come in upstairs, and I'd turn off the vacuum and say, I'm downstairs. There was nobody there, you know, and <laughs> the hair starts rising on the back of your neck. And I thought, oh, this is ridiculous, you know. So I called one of the sisters because it was a family that owned it. And I said, would you and your husband come out and just pray through with me? This is happening. And they said, absolutely. So we all went down there and we walked through the whole building and prayed and um, cast out whatever might be there. And, you know, it was fine and went home. Um, that was on a Friday. And then I think it was on a Monday she called me and she said, oh my gosh, Mitch. She says, you didn't know this, but ever since we moved into that office, my family has been fighting. And Monday morning, my brothers had scheduled an appointment with dad and they were going to dissolve the business. They were going to walk away. And she said, and they met, and instead of dissolving the business, they completely reconciled everything. And so it was that demonic activity that was just stirring them up and they didn't they didn't recognize it, didn't know it, because the cleaning lady got tired of being harassed. You know, in Thankfully. the name of Jesus. Yeah, we cast Thankfully. it out, and they're still in business today. So, yeah. yeah. Are you a stockholder now? No. <laughs> Have you I've run that by them? <laughs> I did invest. <laughs> okay, there you go. 
Now, now think about that for a moment. This is why I asked her to share this, okay? Because again, these are people that we know. These aren't just stories I'm pulling off the internet. Every story is either somebody that you know or that I personally know, okay? Because you can go on the internet and find all sorts of funky stuff out there, and it's funky. But what you need to understand here is that there was something unique that was going on. And what was unique is she being in the moment cleaning. You were hired to clean, okay? They didn't ask her to come in and burn sage. They didn't ask her to come in and cleanse the property and anoint the walls with oil or any of this other stuff. They just said, hey, it needs clean. Well, I clean. Good. You want to do it? Sure. That was her job. But in that, she couldn't help but notice there was something that was going on. Now, if you've ever been in those situations, you begin to recognize. But fortunately for you, you recognize what was going on. Now, did you know every detail? Probably not. Probably didn't want to know every detail, to be honest with you. But finally, she got to the point she had enough. And she rebuked the enemy, and look what it did. That family, ready to dissolve the business because of whatever tension was going on, had no idea it was spiritual. Can we agree that that probably happens more frequently than what we realize? You realize it happens in families. It happens in, it happens in churches. Do you guys realize how many churches have been destroyed by people who thought they were following the will of God and the Holy Spirit? Because they get in there, they begin to divide the body, and they start to say things, whatever it is, and it seems well-intentioned. Do you realize that there are people who feel like it is their mission from God to make sure that everybody else who is wrong knows they're wrong and that that person is right? We all probably know somebody like that. You see, there's a distinction here. They could have hired anybody else, and they wouldn't have had a job very long because there wouldn't have been a business in their office to clean. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's being aware of the spiritual world around us, not starting assuming, oh, man, there's a demon in the closet. It is ending up there's like, I'm having discernment. I'm, I am on plane with what is happening here in my surroundings spiritually. So when we read 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's not arbitrary. If you are in Christ, all things have become new, including your ability to discern what is going on and including your ability to take authority over what is going on. All of those things matter. You, and I'm using you as an example here because you're here, okay? You've heard me say this. We as believers not only have the ability, but we have the responsibility to walk in the fullness of what the Word of God says. Most people do not recognize their ability, and most people do not take on the responsibility. They excuse it away. What are the excuses? Well, I don't know the Bible good enough. I'm not, I'm not gifted in that. I mean, would you say there's anything special about you? That right there. Well played. That's solid. That's smart, right? Gentlemen, if you're looking for wisdom, we have Solomon here. But I mean, what I'm saying is like, like there's no gifting. You don't wake up. You're not exercising demons over Skype for money. Like, this isn't something you walk around and do all the time. That's a real thing out there, in case you were wondering. I'm not making that up, okay? That's a real thing. Okay? Sounds like it's pretty lucrative too. So if you're looking for a little side hustle, there you go. But here it is, the person in the moment who knew their authority and even in there wasn't gutsy enough to do it herself but knew who to turn to and also knew the responsibility of the believer to overcome this situation. You guys get it? That's what somebody who's new in Christ does. See, in Romans 8 it says to be carnally minded is death but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So, here she was being spiritually minded. Most people in that situation would have just gone about cleaning. Oh, this is weird, but it's not my problem. Most people counseling that family, having the argument, be like, listen, can't you all just get along? This is a lucrative business, you know. Can't you put your differences aside? But a spiritually minded person should be able to discern something that's happening. I'm saying that this doesn't happen overnight, but as you do it, as you begin to look at it, you begin to recognize. I'm telling you, I've been in the middle of conflicts. I've been, I get brought in as a mediator, not just in the local church body, but different ministries and different things that are going on. And you begin to pick up on spiritual undertones is what I'll call it, okay? I don't have good terminology for any of this stuff. But you begin to recognize somebody who's blinded, somebody who's being led astray. 
And I'll even say it like this, okay? Now, I have never seen this, but this is how I describe it. There are people, it's like they have a demon on their shoulder speaking into their ear, and they are treating them like a puppet, moving their head and their mouth, saying things that might sound spiritual. Like, this sounds weird, but this is the world that we are in. You see, that believer recognizes in 2 Corinthians 10, it says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. They pull down strongholds, cast down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. They take every thought into captivity against the knowledge, and against the obedience of Christ. You see, we walk in the flesh, we don't war in it. We're of this world, we're in this world, we're not of it. We are sojourners in this land. And with that comes a responsibility. I mean, think about this. When a mission is given, when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, he did not send his disciples to seminary. Think about that. I mean, they, you could argue they just had it for the last three years. But he didn't say, go out there and get trained, and I'm not discounting that. The only thing he said is like, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. Because when the Holy Spirit, you need him. You need that power from on high. That's all he said. But to go, that was it. That was their job. Well, where do we go? When do we go there? How are we going to get there? How much money do we need to raise? Do I need a private jet? None of those questions were asked. It was just go time. Ephesians 6, 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the methods of the devil, the methods of which he attacks. You see, all of these things are here for the believer. You have the ability and the responsibility. These aren't super anointed, gifted people. You look at people on TV and on a platform or whatever, and you're like, man, if I could do that, yeah, then absolutely, I, I'd be able to do this. These are average Joes that God has called to a position that maybe has a voice, but you, too, have a voice. You just may not have the platform. You don't need the platform. We're obedient to serve. We bloom where we're planted. Do you guys realize that if it was just on the 12 apostles to go upon and spread the message of the gospel, we wouldn't be standing here right now. You see, we read all the cool stuff in the book of Acts. We're going to read some today. But what we don't realize is all the people, as a result of the ministry of the apostles, that went out and did the exact same thing. You see it with Philip. They needed some deacons. They said, well, let's find seven men full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And we see Philip. That's the only one we really see do anything. We see other names, like, kind of peppered in and there in the book of Acts, but that's all we see. And we wonder why we're confused. Well, the reason we're confused is we look at them. It's like, well, look at them. They traveled around. They had these big ministries. They, they were the ones that did the work. No, they're the ones that were captured in the writings of the New Testament. There were thousands of people out there doing the work. This is where we've lost it. So in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. See, he's looking for people to devour, believer and non-believer. The non-believer does not have the ability or the responsibility to withstand it. But the believer does. The believer has the ability and the responsibility to stand against him. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority, everything that is named is under that authority, which is all things. So as a result of that authority, he tells his apostles, I want you to go. I want you to make disciples out of every nation. I want you to baptize with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I want you to do, teach them to observe what I have commanded. Who commanded? Jesus commanded. So all the teaching of Jesus are applicable and should be taught. Not what you think they say, but what he said. So with that, because I know we're recapping. With that, we need to understand something. We have been deceived. Let me show you. John chapter 10. We read this several weeks ago. Verse 1. It says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, or enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. 
To him the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leaves them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Now, the they that we are addressing here, if you remember, in context, because he's not speaking to the disciples. If you remember going back to John chapter 8, he's speaking to the Pharisees. Very specifically, talking to them. And they don't understand what he's saying. That's because he's going on some wild illustration that doesn't make sense. And the good part is, is it doesn't make sense to most of us either. Let's go on, verse 7. Jesus said to them again, most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, I'll stop there. If you recall, what I told you is the thief is not the devil. But the thief is what? The Pharisees. You can argue they were being led by the devil. That's fine. But he is speaking very specifically. So here... He is making a distinction of what he does versus what they were doing. And those who came before him. All who came before him were thieves and robbers. So you've got to understand something. The shepherd protected the sheep, laid down his life for the sheep. There was one way in. It was through the gate. If they tried to come in any other way, they were a thief and a robber. Because you know what you don't have to do? You don't have to break in to your own house. You have the key. Most of the time, unless you're Isaac, Isaac occasionally locks keys in a house. But you walk right in. You have the right. Do you realize that you have nothing stopping you ever from walking in the front door of the house? And if you choose to climb through the window, get your head examined. You see, only people who do not belong there would climb in any other way, would enter any other way. That's the point he's making. He's telling them, and again, they didn't understand that, so he's elaborating, that I am the shepherd, my sheep know my voice, I am the door of which they walk in and out of to find good pasture, and every person that came before me is lying. Let's go on, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling. He who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by uh, by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The other sheep, and other sheep I have which are not in this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And many have argued that that would be the Gentile world he's talking about there. Could be, he could be talking about the scattered Israelites around the the nation there, or the area there, because they were all scattered abroad. But he is talking about a distinction between the good shepherd, who does what? He leads a sheep. He lays down his life for a sheep. But a hireling, somebody who has put themselves in the position of the shepherd, but has not taken the responsibility of the shepherd, because those sheep aren't his. So when it gets tough, what do they do? They bail. Wolf's coming. Not my problem. Not my sheep. Some of you have said it. Not my circus. Not my monkeys. Right? It's the same thing. The sheep that aren't in this fold, he's going to bring them. He's got to do this. We look at verse 17. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Now watch what happens. Verse 19. There was a division among the Jews because of these sayings. Now remember, the Jews. What was he referencing? It's the Pharisees and who, who were around there. I mean, there were probably other people there. Many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? And watch this, verse 21. Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You see, 
there's confusion. Because the thing that you see throughout the entirety of the New Testament, especially in the Gospels when it deals with Jesus, is they were always astonished of how he spoke and how he taught. Because he didn't speak like the scribes. He spoke as one having authority. And because of that, he always confused them. And so what are they trying to do? They're undermining what he's saying. He has a demon. He's crazy. Why are y'all listening to him? Why are you giving him a platform? You know, if you quit following him around, maybe he'd shut up. But others are there like, these aren't words of somebody like that. And demons don't open blind eyes. Remember the Messianic miracles. We've talked about that before. You see, shepherds were a member of what was considered an unclean profession in the eyes of aristocrats and the Pharisees. They were looked down upon. And Jesus is saying, I'm the shepherd. You see, the reason the Pharisees didn't care about the sheep is because they were beneath them. They cared about control. You can see that in the entire time. They bribed the guards to say, well, tell them that you fell asleep. You can find some of this in Jeremiah chapter 23. Verse 1, it says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them. And bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Now, who is he talking about? This is Jeremiah. This is a time that they're in captivity. Apparently, there were some leaders that were there who were leading the sheep. And what's he saying? You destroy and scatter my sheep. You've scattered my flock, you've driven them away, you've not attended to them, so I'm going to come after you. And he's taking over the shepherdship. In other words, they were given into his, their hands to nurture and care for. And now they're answering for God for their lack of caring and lack of nurturing. You ever ask yourself this, why did Jesus have disciples? Why did he choose 12 people to follow him around for three years? He needed people he could pour into, people he could teach, people that could carry his message beyond what his time on earth was going to be. I mean, you think about it. Those 12 people are the reason you and I are here today. Think about that. That's crazy to think about. But we literally wouldn't be here had Jesus not done that. Sure, he could have found a different way, could have done something different. The Pharisees were making sure that Israel would not see Jesus as Messiah. They were doing everything in their power to stop it. They had the responsibilities, as if you guys know, I'll, I'll, I'll recap this basically as this. The Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court. Pharisees were in control of it at the time of Christ. Later, the Sadducees were during the time of the apostles. But during the time of Christ, the Pharisees were in charge of it. And for Messiah to be declared by national Israel... The Pharisees were the ones that had to do it. They would inspect, they would go, and they would examine what was going on, and only they could declare it. And they had declared that Jesus is not the Son of God. He is not Messiah. Can't be, because he's got this, he's got that going on, he's got all this other stuff taking place. Is that true? No. Why are they doing it? Were the miracles there? Yeah. Were the prophecies there? Yeah. Did they know them? Was this ignorance? No, it's not ignorance when Jesus rises like he said he was going to and they try to bribe the guards to keep their mouth shut. Tell them you fell asleep and the, uh, the disciples stole the body. That's not ignorance. That's covering up. You see, and there's, there's several of that kind of stuff that went on. Jesus came on mission. Look at Luke chapter 19. Verse 41, it says, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. If you had known, even you, especially in this, uh, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you, and your children within you, to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. When it says did not know, this wasn't a lack of confusion. It was saying you did not recognize. This was on purpose. He was here. They should have declared him Messiah. Now, of course, God knew this was how it was going to play out. But he came to set all of this in place. They didn't recognize, so therefore judgment was upon them. And if you know your history, this is the, the battle that took place, 70 A.D., to the destruction of the temple, all of that stuff that was prophesied by Jesus. It happened exactly how he said it was going to happen. But he wept over the city. So what did he do after this moment? Look at verse 45. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for the people were very attentive to hear him. Now look at this. He goes into the temple. You've got to understand, the temple was the light of the world. The temple housed the presence of God. Now, it didn't at this moment, unless you count Jesus standing in there, then you could argue that. But this is where the center of everything is. If you were going to worship God, what did you do? You brought a sacrifice. There was a pattern that had to be followed. So as soon as he's coming into town, he makes this declaration. He goes in there and he drives out those who bought and sold in it. Now understand this. People were traveling from a long distance. So they'd had a market set up to where you could buy a sacrifice versus bringing one with you. It made it a lot simpler. And what does he quote to them? The Old Testament. It is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He's quoting scripture as to the motive of why he's doing what he's doing. And what's he do after that? He was teaching daily in the temple. What was he teaching, do you think? teaching scripture just like he used it there just like he used it multiple other places he was teaching what the word of God said and what was the result of that the chief priests the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him who are they they are the thieves so when I say that we have been deceived here's why is that the leaders of the body of Christ for the last several hundred years but even it's upticking and it changes in our generation right now. It's that we have taken who God is and transformed him into something that is much more palatable, much more easy to deal with than the God of the Old Testament and the angry God. We have bought into a narrative that we have ideas of who God is, but we refuse to accept the standard. We look at Jesus as our example, but we refuse to use Jesus as our example. How screwed up is that? When you look at the result of what takes place with the apostles and seeing all the events that took place, what happened and how it happened and how Jesus did what he said he was going to do. And how he told them that he was going to die, and they didn't like that. They said, but don't worry, I'm going to come back three days later. And they didn't believe that. And then it happened, so they couldn't deny that. Something transformational takes place. It was like, suddenly, they said, you know what? All this stuff he has said is true, and I'm just going to go with it. And we see this begin to take place in Acts chapter 2. Now, we're going to read for a little bit today, so bear with me. I'm not going to go too long, I hope. Acts chapter 2 says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So we know this story because we've read it a million times. You don't go to a charismatic church and not hear this preach umpteen times. First of all, day of Pentecost is crucial. Why is that important? Because it was one of the three feasts of which every able-bodied male Jew had to be back in Jerusalem. So it's kind of hopping. Think of Mardi Gras, if you will, with a lot less debauchery, Okay. A lot, yeah, a lot is right. But I mean, you know, people flood from all over the place to go there for Mardi Gras. I don't know why, but they do. I go there for crawfish, but that's just another story. And so this place has got a lot of going on. There are a lot of people from everywhere are here. 
And they were all with one accord in one place. So they're sitting there in one area. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, let me ask you this question. What did Jesus tell them to do before he ascended? He said, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to wait there until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Okay? Now, we're seeing this, but did he say, hey, by the way, there's going to be a loud noise. It's going to sound like wind. It's not wind. It's going to sound like wind. And then as you look around, you're going to see what appears to be a divided tongue of fire upon each of their heads. And you're all going to start speaking in language that you don't know. None of that was warned, right? He said, I want you to go and I want you to wait. So were they expecting this to take place like this? I doubt it. Verse 5, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because every, everyone heard them speaking in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear them each in our own language in which we were born? Now remember, Galileans were not educated, so they don't know all of these languages. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who dwell in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And they all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? Others mocked, saying they are full of new wine. They are drunk. Now, these are the twelve, okay? We don't know how many are there exactly. Because the upper room in Acts 1 is not necessarily this event. Okay? So we don't know how many are there. We know that there were at least, well, I say the 12, the 11. They're still shorter guy. Well, Matthias was probably there. He's already picked. Sidebar. Anyway. So they're sitting there praying. They're at a minimum near the temple, if not in the temple. Because this is what goes on. They had to come to the temple eventually. That would be why there were all these people around. None of this was forewarned to them. What's the result? Verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven. So how do we know? Those guys stood up. How many were there in that upper room? We don't know for sure. Raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now here's the question. How did he know that? It shall come to pass in the last days, says God. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Old men will dream dreams. My, on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, how did he know that? Let me tell you how he knew that. Is because it was believed by the Jewish people is that in the age of Messiah, when he comes, it will be an age of prophecy. It will be an age of fulfillment. Did they know every detail? No, they did not. But Peter is the same guy who denied Christ to a little girl. He boldly stands up. He says, men of Judea and all who are in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and heed my words. He's not the same man. Something transformed in him when he saw Jesus alive. I am not undermining this event, okay? But when you watch the man who you believed to be the Son of God die in front of you, all hope was lost. Jesus said, I'm coming back. He didn't believe him or he'd have been standing there waiting for it to happen. Something changed. Now he's fully convinced. There is no doubt in his mind that anything that Jesus has said will happen. Now watch what happens here and what he does. He quotes a prophecy from Joel. Joel being obviously a prophet, this is what we consider part of our Old Testament. He's quoting what we call Scripture. It's also what they called Scripture. 
Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, and as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God has raised up, and having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So he said that this is a man that was attested by God through the miracles, wonders, and signs that he did in their midst, and that everybody else knows. He was delivered by God and raised by God. Everybody knew that he was back. There was no argument. Nobody in Jerusalem did not know of the event of the crucifixion and did not know of the event of the resurrection. Everybody knew of it. But watch what he does here. Does he just go off of the experience? No. Verse 25, David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life and you will make me full of joy in your presence. What is he quoting? Scriptures. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you, the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried in his tomb, is with us to this day. So therefore, being a prophet, did you know he was a prophet? Do now. And knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. How did he know that? How did they know that? Because it was in Scripture. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Who were all the witnesses? All of them were. Everybody knew about it in Jerusalem. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the, prom, uh, the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So now he's telling them that the Father had promised to send the Holy Spirit, and this is the moment that you are seeing this take place, but he is using the truth of the Scriptures to prove his point. What's he say in verse 34? For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So what's he quoting? The Scriptures. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What he is saying is getting through. He's making a declaration that Messiah was here and you didn't see him. And the reason you didn't see him is because you were deceived. But you know he was crucified and you know he came back. And now you're seeing the fulfillment of the scriptures that you have known since you were a child. Peter's response to them says, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now remember, when we talk about baptism, they baptize all the time, and when you baptize, you are making a declaration, I am now following this teacher, this rabbi. In verse 40, he says, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and good, and divided them among all as anyone had need, and continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So what did they do? As a result of the Holy Spirit coming upon, it got their attention. Peter stood up and preached and used the scriptures as his guide, the same scriptures that Jesus used, the same scripture that Jesus fully believed was the word of God. He quoted it so many times, how could you not? And it says, with many other words, he testified and exhorted and said, you need to be saved from this perverse generation. But what did they do after that? They continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine and their fellowship. They broke bread. They prayed together. Then it goes down, verse 46. They continued daily with one accord. In other words, united. Where at? In the temple. They broke bread from house to house. 
And they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. So what was happening? The disciples were now discipling. Every day they were together. They spent time praying together. They were growing together in the apostles' doctrine. What was the apostles' doctrine? It's what Jesus did and said. How Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. How Jesus taught the scriptures. Remember at the end of John, he had a revelation and understanding of the scriptures unlike that maybe you and I have had. But there's something that's going on here. And it always goes back to that basis point. Did Jesus do anything that was contrary to the scriptures? And think Old Testament when you think scripture. The answer is no. In many ways, he fulfilled them. Some are yet to be fulfilled, but in, in, in many ways, he fulfilled them and took them deeper. Now, let's go to chapter 3. I'm going fast. So, after this, now this is a, a span of time. We don't know exactly how long, okay? This isn't necessarily the next day. But it says, Peter and John went up together to the temple, the hour of prayer. So what were they doing? They continually went to the temple. They were continually there praying. It was the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who enter the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. And he gave him his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and he lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So what took place here? Peter's going to pray, minding his business, but he's going to pray. And here's a guy who's been sitting there unable to walk. And this is how he made his living. This is how he supported himself, because he couldn't work. There were no food stamps. There was nothing like that. So he sat there. And he looked at Peter. What did he think? Give me some money. But Peter, just being in the moment, did God say that morning, Peter, I want you to go, I want you to go through this gate. And I want you to do this act. If he did, we have no record of it. What it appears to be happening is he was just heading off to pray. He saw an opportunity. And he knew, because of what Jesus had done, that he had the ability and the responsibility to do something about it. And he didn't go in there half-hearted. He didn't say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And then he pat him on the back. No, he reached down, he picked him up. There was no doubt in his mind what was about to happen. So everybody there is filled with wonder and amazement, rightfully so. But watch what happens. Verse 11, now as a lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, and all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. Peter saw it, and he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to be let go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. And His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And yes, the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So what is He doing? He's calling them to the carpet. Why are you looking at us? This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And He has a name. In this case, it's Jesus. You see, you delivered Jesus. He was in front of you. You crucified him. Pilate wanted to let him go. No, you didn't want that to happen. You took a thief. But this Jesus is the one who did this. Verse 17, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. What prophets? All the prophets. And that would be found where? In the scriptures. Repent 
and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it should be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Now I'm going to stop there. What did he just quote? The scriptures. And what did it say? Is that everybody who rejects the one who is raised up after Moses will be utterly destroyed. That doesn't sound like the kumbaya Jesus being preached today, does it? Verse 24, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as have spoken have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now, he's doing what? He's preaching the gospel. He's using the Old Testament as what we call it as the scriptures to guide him. These are things that they are familiar with. The signs and wonders were nothing more than something to grab the attention of the people. And they did it. You see, there's power in that. But it wasn't what he focused on. He didn't say, hey, let's social media. Let's take out newspaper ads. Let's do all of this stuff. No, he said, you should expect this because we're in the time of the Holy Spirit, the Messianic age. That's the difference. He's going back to the scriptures, showing them the truth that they had denied. Now we're almost done, but go to Acts chapter 4. Now as they spoke to the people, all the people who would hear them, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Who are the Sadducees and the captain of the temple and the priest, we'd call them the thieves. They laid hands on them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Do you know what that word believe means? That means in that moment they are now saved. They're in covenant with the Father and the Son. They are now the Son of God or daughter of God. Doesn't matter. They are born again and they did it without an altar call. Can you believe that? Now, did he show up at some church and preach a sermon? No. What was he doing? Going to pray. Never lose sight of that. It's one of the disciplines of the Christian faith. He was just minding his business, going to pray, saw an opportunity, and he knew he had the ability and the responsibility. Let's read on. And it came to pass, verse 5, on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now I'm going to stop there. A miracle has happened they can't deny. Now, they knew, because this was the belief system then, that you would invoke a higher power name. No matter what you were doing, that's how you did it. The, the name greater. There's, there's scripture that support this idea. So now they're trying to figure this out. How did you do this? Okay? Peter, watch what it says. Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's crucial. Said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. It would have been a lot shorter if he would have said, hey, thieves. Verse 9. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man... By what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is then what's he, what he's doing. The stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. What did he do? Quote a scripture. Are they the protagonist or the antagonist in this event? It's not good for them. Verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, they don't like that name. They tried to have him killed and were successful. They were good at the killing, not at the keeping dead part. 
they try to cover it up by bribing the guards. I mean, think about this. They're trying everything in their power to have people not look at Jesus as the Messiah because it goes against what they believed and what they taught. Now, verse 13, watch what happens. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, what got their attention? That's a different man that was standing there at the cross. Why was he so bold? He's full of the Holy Spirit. That's important. But when you are so convinced about something that you will boldly proclaim it no matter what, and when you saw Jesus die just like they did, and even though he told you he was not going to stay there, three days later he'd rise, and you didn't believe him, you watched him. You cannot be talked out of that. That's boldness. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized they had been with Jesus. Why were they uneducated and untrained? Because that's where they're Galileans. Jesus didn't send them to seminary. He didn't say, go get your master of divination. He said, wait for the Holy Spirit. Seeing the man whom has been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. They couldn't deny it. It was there in front of them. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. So now they're going to take it to a vote. Saying, what do we do with these guys? A notable miracle has been done through them, is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But... So that it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them. And from now on, they speak to no man in this name. So, the miracle did not persuade them. Do you know why? They're hirelings over the sheep of Israel. They're not willing to lay down anything for their people. We can't deny it. But we're going to try to keep it under wraps. So, we're going to threaten them. We're going to scare them a little. We're going to put a mandate in place. See what I did there? That was fun, wasn't it? We're going to put a mandate in place that you can't speak in that name. Now, we know what's going to happen here, right? They're going to say, okay, yep, we got you, no problem, I understand. We don't want to disobey. Verse 18. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now they tell them they couldn't speak, and they tell them they couldn't teach. Everything was kosher until you brought the reality of this Jesus. Now, could they have used the name Jesus, but maybe changed his personality, changed his directive, changed his effectiveness? In other words, listen, I know Jesus said that you should do X, Y, Z, but he's all loving, and he's all merciful. He made you this way. He loves you just the way you are. Would they have had a problem with that Jesus? No. They'd have been fine. Because it wouldn't have messed up their world. They just didn't like the real Jesus. So they called them and commanded them not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you can judge that. But we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and which we have heard. What's he talking about? They saw all the acts and the miracles that Jesus had done. And they heard all of his teachings. We can't help to teach about that. So, when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. Now that's the thing. They turned their attention to God. So they cannot deny the good. The man's walking. That's never happened. People are looking to God, that's great, but you all just got to leave this Jesus part out of it. Verse 22, for the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, my father who art in heaven hallowed be your name. That's not what they said. They didn't turn to some liturgical prayer. 
They said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nation rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. What are they quoting? The scripture. How do they know what David had said? It's because of the scriptures. If there wasn't scriptures, they wouldn't know it and thus they wouldn't know what Jesus had fulfilled. Verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness that we may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. What name? It's the name of Jesus. The name that they were threatened to not speak of, to not teach and to not use anymore. And what did they say? Look at their threats and grant us boldness. They didn't cower. They didn't go hide. They didn't make excuses. In fact, if you read on beyond this, you'll see all the fallout that takes place. And when they had prayed, verse 31, the place where they assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with all boldness. Something different there in there, folks. See, we've been deceived. We've accepted a version of the truth that is not of the scriptures. We've got parts of it right. But somewhere along the way, we've, we've fallen into the, the idea that we have to preach the gospel at all times. And if it's necessary, we should use words. Think about that. Let's put that in that example there. That preaches good, doesn't it? But if they had done what, we just, what I just said, would they have been following the mandate laid out? Absolutely. They would have said, hey, they're not speaking the name of Jesus. They're not using words. We wouldn't be here. We've taken the God of the Bible and transformed him into something that's much more palatable where there is no responsibility or accountability or ability. But we just get saved and we just kind of exist and we, we just go to church and we pray occasionally. We give a little here, we give a little there. We do, we do a few things, but we're like, we're not that. Because if we ever in this country have to face what they were facing right there, the majority of the church would be like, that's okay, I don't want to break the law. That's just the truth. We have been deceived. And we don't like to admit it. But we have been deceived. We have bought a lie. So the thief has entered in. See, the thief comes in, and he'll try to break us up. Why rumor and gossip is so so bad, it's spoken of poorly in the New Testament, talking about gossips. Because what they do is they get this idea, they believe it's from the Lord, they'll get in there and they'll start to work their little things and they'll start saying things and they'll either come against the authority of the church or, or individual members in the church and it'll cause tension and if you start to buy into that, you may not even realize that you're being used as a puppet of the enemy. A family's business getting ready to divide and split had no idea there was a supernatural thing going on and just like Peter, she's in a situation Showed up to vacuum. What she was doing. Peter showed up to pray. And he recognized an opportunity. And an ability. And a responsibility. See, here's what's happened. Romans chapter 1. Last verse and I'm getting you out of here. Verse 18. I've read this before, but I want you to look at this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. So how much of it? It's all of it. There's nothing left. Who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what does it mean to suppress the truth? It means that I can't deny what we're seeing in front of us, but just keep it quiet. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Who has an excuse? Nobody does. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. They became futile 
in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And what did they do? They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Now, we always look at this from some sort of an idol. They created something. But what, what if it's like this? They took the unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, loving and merciful God. And when I say loving, loving means you speak the truth. And you change him into the corruptible man, which is not all-knowing and not all-loving. But he's all mercy. He's all grace. In other words, we change him into something that wavers like we do. You see, this is why the scriptures are so crucial. The foundation of our belief system in God is captured in this. And it's unique. And if you eliminate this, then the apostles did not know what prophecies Jesus fulfilled because they had no reference point. And Jesus would just be arbitrarily quoting Moses and these other because there would be no reference point. It wouldn't sink in because there's no standard being applied against it. In other words, the opinion of, about God is just that, an opinion about God. And I can't say whether you're right or wrong because how do we know? It's just our experience. This is where we've been lied to. We have fallen for the attack of the enemy in the body of Christ. We talk about identity crisis. What separated the early church? They spoke the word with boldness. Are we doing that today? Some are. It's not all bad. But a lot aren't. We've changed the word church to simply a gathering. It has to be because there are atheist churches now. So you can figure that one out. So it's not what it was. We've changed the word love as meaning speaking the truth. How do we know that? Because if you've seen American Idol, some of them folks are terrible singers. And nobody loved them enough to not tell them the truth. And they got on national TV and sang, she bangs, she bangs, whatever. I forget that guy's name, but it was hilarious. I mean, that's not loving. It's not loving when there is a bus bearing down at somebody and we don't want to offend them with the truth of it. Ray Comfort says it like this. Okay, this is what I'm going to leave you with. Because I put a challenge out last week. Is we need to begin to think different. We need to take those opportunities. And we need to be intentional about it when we're there. With intentionality will come results. But he puts it like this. If you were riding on an airplane and I gave you a parachute and I told you that that parachute it's going to make your ride so much better. It's going to be awesome. That parachute has a great plan for you. It's going to be spectacular. It's going to make you special. And that's all I say about it. And you're sitting on that airplane, and you've got a kid on your left, and some overweight person on your right, and the air conditioner's not working right. Someone's spilling coffee on this parachute. You're going to be annoyed because it's taking up your leg space and all of that. Did it stop the turbulence? No. Did you find your best life now? No. But if I hand you that parachute, and I said, the plane is going down. And the only thing that can save you, the only thing, is the parachute that I'm giving you. You're going to look at that parachute a whole lot differently, aren't you? And that's the differences in the gospel being preached. We no longer preach about God's judgments all throughout Scripture. We preach about His mercy and His love. So God will never force somebody into his heaven against their will. They make a choice. But we have an ability and a responsibility to walk in the fullness of the word and the fullness of the spirit as Jesus has commanded. You guys with me? A little heavy today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are quickening us and correcting us. And I think that every word that we speak is full of love and compassion to those who are lost. And with that love and compassion, those words are full of truth. 
that we recognize the ability and the responsibility that you have given us. And we will not shy away from it. We will not make excuses for it. And we will not just sit in our houses and go about life and think somebody else is going to go do something. That's not my job. Lord, I just thank you that you are opening up doors of opportunity. You're quickening our hearts that we'll walk through those doors and that we will never walk away from an opportunity. In fact, Lord, I thank you that we will seek out those opportunities to share the truth of the gospel every single day, no matter where we are, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's at the grocery store, doesn't matter, everywhere we are. And I thank you that as we preach the gospel, that the fullness of the Spirit that has empowered us will go. Lord, we give you the glory, and we thank you for all that you've done and continue to do. And I thank you that you've got a people here that's got a heart like yours. It's in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.